It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to the Jason in the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffin. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. I think you're really going to enjoy this one because we're going to get to call in and talk to uh, James Comer. You know him as the Oversight Committee Chairman. Um, I used to be the Chairman of the House Oversight Committee. Um, But um, I remember when I was Chairman, we had a freshman show up and he was the very bottom, very front of the of the dais and uh turned out to be the next chairman um uh he he was just absolutely uh superb uh when i left uh, trey gowdy took over but then james comer went to went from there so um we're gonna call him uh grew up in kentucky but i don't know a whole lot about his background where he grew up what what he believes uh what was life like uh, for him what did he do professionally before he got to congress so we're going to have all those discussions with James Comer. Uh, got some thoughts on the news. And then we're going to highlight the stupid because, as you know, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. Um, and I look forward to sharing those with you. So uh, let's talk first about the news, um, the stunning news that came out uh, a number of days ago. The total, complete reversal of the Biden administration now suggesting that they need a border wall. Oh, surprise, surprise, walls work. For all the times that Secretary Mayorkas, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, the president, the vice president, the Kareem Jean-Pierre, the White House spokesperson, all the times they got in our grill and got in our face and lied to us. I mean, they really lied to us. The border is secure. The border is not open. The border is closed. Um, we're going to surge resources and do it with technology. That was all a facade. It was a total, complete fiction and lie. And over the course of the Biden administration, we have literally had by the hundreds of thousands and now millions of people cross into our country illegally. These are just the ones that we know about. It's drug trafficking. It's human trafficking. It's illegal. It's unfair to everybody else who's trying to do it legally and lawfully. And you know what? They have thrown out all of these uh, incentives, free education, free health care. We're going to give you a phone. We're going to do all of these things for you. There are more than 80,000 unaccompanied minors, 80,000 minors who came across the border. Who did they go to? Where are they? Who is taking care of them? Nobody has any idea about the stories over the course of time, the crime that will be committed, the housing resources that it will take to house all of these people. It's just untenable. What's changed? Uh, Some of these people now are showing up in New York City and Chicago and Boston and other places where, guess what? Now they're feeling what Texas and Arizona, California, New Mexico have felt being border states, particularly Texas. Borders work. Walls work. By the way, a lot of the argument has always been, hey, if you're really, if you're compassionate and you want to, you know, uh, these people are claiming asylum, 
the proper way, the only way to properly claim asylum is to go to a port of entry. If you don't cross at a port of entry, if you come across the river as you watch on Fox News and you see all the videos day after day at the live cams, if you don't go to a port of entry, the law says you are to be detained and then you are to be deported. That's the current law. Democrats say, oh, we need comprehensive immigration reform. No, we don't. We need to enforce the current law. Go through a port of entry. You can claim asylum and then you'll be dealt with from there. But the drug cartels don't want that. The human traffickers don't want that. Port of entry means that your good data is going to be collected, that your your stuff is going to be screened. That's not the way uh, somebody from the terrorist watch list wants to get across. And by the way, they've, they've uh, scooped up more than 100 of those people along the way. And again, just the ones that we caught. I think it's absolutely, absolutely abysmal. And it is so fundamentally totally wrong. All right, now it's time to bring on the stupid because, you know, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. And now we're going to talk about what happened, the stupid stuff that's happening with the Democrats. You know, after they voted to oust Kevin McCarthy, they seem to be shocked and surprised that Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer had their hideaways taken away. Now, let me explain what hideaway is. If you're in the United States Senate, every senator has their main office. They have committee offices that they can use, but they also have what's called a hideaway. These are small offices. It used to be just for a select few. Senators started complaining. Now they all have a hideaway. Um, it's usually a windowless, small room where they can uh, have a private meeting, quite frankly, take a nap. They can do whatever they want. Crowds don't go there. Their name's not on the door. The media has a tough time figuring out where they are. Um, they can do a whole host of things. It's a hideaway. That's the proper name, and, I, and rightfully so. On the House of Representatives side, there's just a couple hideaways. You had Sam Johnson, who served valiantly, was a prisoner of war for some seven years, had some mobility issues. He passed away a few years ago, but one of the great Americans, period. He was a member of Congress, long-serving member of Congress. They gave him a hideaway close to the floor. It was very difficult for him to get from the floor back to his office and back. That was proper. Uh, you, there's a hideaway uh, for certain members of leadership. Again, they have official big offices, but they have some smaller offices where they can meet privately. They can not have to go back to their office. And typically it's been afforded the f immediate former speaker of the house gets one of those um, offices so when patrick McHenry became the speaker uh temporary speaker the uh speaker pro tem just to functionally be able to take care of some administrative things he is the congressman from north carolina he is the chairman of the financial services uh committee He's taken on this role. Well, one of the first things he did is he recognized at least staff or somebody, but Patrick King Henry's got the leadership role and he took the the, the uh, leadership there. And he said, okay, Nancy Pelosi, you have to vacate this office. Because guess what? She's no longer the immediate past speaker of the house. That's now Kevin McCarthy. And so there's a domino effect. So they kind of brought it on themselves. So. Initially, all the story was, hey, 
Uh, why are you kicking Nancy Pelosi out? A lot of people thought, hey, things are already getting better. But um, nevertheless, when that happened, the consequence is the immediate past Speaker of the House is Kevin McCarthy. So he gets to use that office. And she has to go back to using her current office, her member office, and that's the only office that she has now. That's bringing on the stupid. All right, now it's time to uh, phone a friend because, like I said, I'm really excited to have this conversation with uh, James Comer, the congressman from Kentucky, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee. Let's give him a dial and have a conversation with James Comer. Hello? James Comer, Jason Chaffetz. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. I know you are so busy because, uh, you know what, I, I had your job at one point. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of, lot of mouths to feed, a lot of expectations, but uh, <laughs> I'm very honored and blessed to, to get to have this job, and, and I can never feel your shoes, Jason. Oh, you, 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 that's the that's the Kentucky gentleman coming out of you. Um, I do remember, uh, you, you know, when you were sitting way down at the bottom of the dais there, you had to turn the all the way seat. around. Yeah, all the way around. Those, that's the worst seat in the place. It's like you have to turn your, you know, crock your head over to the right just to see the witnesses. And, let, and if you're going to talk to the chairman, you have to do pull like a, like a, you know, 180 to see each other. Yeah, it wasn't desired real estate, I can tell you that. <laughs> well, that's what you get when you're a freshman, so yeah. That's right. But uh, you you had a quick ascent to the chairmanship, and I did as well. And I love telling Trey Gowdy when I talked to Trey, I said, Trey, yeah, you're like my fourth favorite former chairman of the Oversight Committee. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody loves you and Trey, that's for sure. <laughs> no, 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 don't tell him that. Just don't. Let's not even tell him that. that that's great. All right, so with this Jason on the House podcast, um, we're not going to get into the depths of that. We'll touch on a little bit. But I want to go back to little James Comer. Tell us about you know where were you born, what was life like, the family. Um, where were you born? I was born in Carthage, Tennessee, which is the hometown of Al Gore, and I grew up in Kentucky. I lived every day of my life in Kentucky, except the first day I was born. My mom <laughs> happened to be in Tennessee when she went into labor. But uh, my mom and dad lived about eight miles apart. But one lived in Kentucky, one lived in Tennessee. Both my grandfathers were involved in, in local politics. They were both local party chairs. And my granddad in Tennessee was the uh, chair was the state representative. And he actually represented Carthage. He was Al Gore's state representative. He always hated Al Gore, and he hated his father more than he hated the son. But uh, obviously, my family's all Republicans. So I was born there, grew up in in a, uh, Monroe County, Kentucky, Tompkinsville, Kentucky, a small town. Everybody knows everybody. You know, ten thousand people. The uh, in the county, ten thousand in the county, three less than three thousand in the town. Uh, my dad was a dentist. My my grandfather was in the construction business. They owned some farmland, and I, I fell in love with the farmland. I wanted to do that for my business, uh, so uh, I went to school, got a degree in agriculture, became a really large farmer in South Central Kentucky, and uh, but I always wanted to be in politics. So I ran for state representative when I was twenty seven and one, and pretty much. Uh, been in some type of public service ever since. All right, let's uh, so let's let's go way back though. So when you're growing up, brothers, sisters, um, were yeah. you were you playing 
athletics? Were you like yeah. a drama guy? Were you a geek? <laughs> what What was going on there? I would love to tell you some great basketball stories, but I'm afraid my buddies from high school will hear this podcast. We'll call and, you uh, out. <laughs> call me out, but I, I love basketball. That's the sport of choice in Kentucky. I, I played basketball in high school. I, I love to tell people, Jason, I was a, I was on the best high school basketball team to ever come out of Monroe County. I was the eighth leading scorer <laughs> on that team. But the problem is they only had a seven man rotation. <laughs> there right you go. There. You're in the top. Yeah. You're in the Look, top. Right. Played basketball. I mean, how tall day. are you? You're not exactly, you know, towering over people. I'm five eleven. My boy's a really good baseball player. He's six feet tall, so he's a lot more athletic than I was. Well, that's good. You know, you pass it on to a generation. So your yeah. school that you went to, like how many people in the graduating class? Do you remember? I mean, yeah, approximately. It's, it's one, one public school in the whole county, uh, graduating class of 140. Wow. You know, I was top of the class, uh, class officer. I was active in, in addition to playing basketball, I was a member of the Future Farmers of America. I don't know if you're familiar with that organization. Oh, yeah. I was actually state president of the Future Farmers of America. So I was pretty active in that organization and, uh, you know, pretty active in, in high school and things like that, but it's a small town, uh, grew up in public schools. So I'm a big proponent of, of public education. So when you were doing the future farmers, I mean, your dad was a dentist. So mm -hmm. what were you farming too? I mean, did you, do you have a uh, plot of land there? What were you doing? I did. I did. He had a pretty good sized farm and, and I, I actually showed cattle growing up. All through uh, middle school and high school, I showed uh, Charlet cattle. That's a white breed of cattle. I showed all over the United States and uh, mm. doing that. So that was my FFA project was beef cattle. And ironically, when I when I graduated from high school, I just really jumped into farming full time, really big, and uh, did what every business guy does. I started borrowing money and, and buying <laughs> land and, and uh, leveraging that. And, and I really accumulated a lot of land. I'm one of the bigger landowners in my home area and didn't really in inherit that much. I uh, just did it the old fashioned way, took risks and got a lot of land. I still still have a lot of liabilities, still have a lot of farm debt and stuff. But uh, at the end of the day, I think I've had a pretty successful private sector career. So when you're doing the beef, um, as opposed to dairy, um, and you hear some of this discussion going on from these elites in Washington talking about climate change and methane from cows. And I mean, do they even understand what it's like to, and how hard that business is? No. And one thing I've learned in a short period of time in, in Washington, you, you've got people making decisions, big decisions that affect a lot of industries that have absolutely no idea what they're talking about and one of the elected office the elected office that i was before i came to congress was i was statewide commissioner of agriculture at the same time adam putnam was in florida if you remember yeah, then yeah and and so we were both you know in in 13 states we elect our commissioner of agriculture it's like attorney general and right. and governor and treasurer it's a, it's a statewide constitutional officer and i met i remember meeting when i first got elected with the epa in atlanta and they had all these people that were making big decisions affecting agriculture. 
And they all grew up in Atlanta. None of them had ever even <laughs> been on a farm. They didn't know anything about they were they were coming out with these rules on fertilizer. And you have to have fertilizer to, to make your hay grow and to, and to make your corn grow, to, to be able to feed your livestock and much less feed America. And they were making these detrimental rules on fertilizer application. And they didn't even know what fertilizer was. They didn't know how it was applied. They didn't know how expensive it was. And, you know, just didn't know how much fertilizer you put out per acre. And, and I mean, but they're making major decisions. Right. And these are bureaucrats that are in charge of, of important policy for an industry that they have no idea what, what, what the industry is. No, I, I think that's one of the universal truths. I mean, this is one of the biggest challenges is certainly as you look at the technology sector, look at ag sector. And it's certainly true when you look at things like the Second Amendment. It's amazing to me how many Democrats want to implement gun control. And yet when you when they start talking about how guns work, it's obvious they've never fired a gun. They've never owned a gun. They've never been around guns. It, it, and yet they want to change the way everybody else deals with guns. That's exactly right. Uh, I would <laughs> I would go as far as to say one thing that I've learned in the oversight uh, committee, you've got a lot of Democrats that were, you know, take Trump's tax return. They were wanting to release them. They thought there was, mm-hmm. you know, had to be something there, but they don't know what depreciation is. They don't know what <laughs> yeah. business write-offs are. They don't know what 1030 must be, must are. be shady, <laughs> but they're making tax decisions. They create the tax laws, but they don't know anything about it because all they've ever been is an employee. They've been what you know what you would call a W-2 employee, but yet they want to change the tax code. You got Ocasio-Cortez and, and the squad wanting to change the tax code, but they don't understand the tax code. I mean, so you've got bureaucrats making decisions and politicians making decisions about industries that they don't know anything about. And agriculture is a prime example. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's go back here. So you're you're in high school. You're you're in the you know seventh man in the rotation on the basketball team, so your future in the NBA is a little suspect. But did your parents say, "Hey, look, uh, James, we really want you to go to college"? And, and, and what was that thought process? When did you decide, "Hey, yeah, I want to do this, not do this"? What what did you do? Well, I always wanted to be in politics too. I wanted to be in business. I wanted to have a successful business and then get into politics. Why? Like, where'd that come from? Well, my, both my grandfathers were, were involved in local politics. And I just, when I was a kid, I was the kid that read the newspaper. I was the kid that watched Crossfire on CNN. I Back remember that. CNN yeah. Got, got God awful. And, and I did, uh, you know, I read books. I didn't read, you know, a lot of books, but every book I read was was on, you know, some type of politician, president, political biography, things like that. So uh, just was really interested in a volunteer in campaigns. I was always active in the, the college Republicans and the local Republican Party. So that's how, you know, that's what I that's what I wanted to do. So obviously I was going to go to college and uh, I stayed close to home. I went to Western Kentucky University. I graduated in three years and it's a. Uh, I didn't have any college credit when I when I started. We didn't have stuff like that in that little rural school. We didn't even have a computer or an air conditioner in my high school. <laughs> so, uh, and I graduated in 1990. I'm not that old. I guess you know I'm I'm 51 now. But you're getting older. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> but uh, but no, I wanted to go to college and I wanted to get done with college really quickly, and I did, and moved back home, and that's where I've been ever since. So at some point, you met 
met a young lady, right? At, uh, yep. at, how, how'd that go down? It, it, so I've known her all my life. It's funny talking about this small town. Uh, my father and my wife's father graduated from high school together in 1959. So when I was a, when I was a, a senior on the basketball team, my, my wife was a freshman cheerleader on the basketball, you know, that, that cheered for the basketball team. So we grew up in the same church, in the same town, in the same, uh, same school. So after I graduated from college, we, we, and she graduated from college. We, we started, we started dating and, uh, we got married. So we've been married 20 years. We have three kids, but, uh, but we've known each other forever. I mean, I've known her her entire life and I'm, I'm, Two and a half years older than she is. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Congressman James Comer right after this. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Well, good. I hope the grandpas, you know, got along all right. And I guess they had to be okay with it moving forward, oh, yeah. being that close. Yeah, yeah. They they always liked each other. Okay, so you go to college, you get your degree, and you start borrowing money to acquire these this cattle and land, and and then you're off to the races from there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say it was easy. It's a there were farming cyclical. You know, there are good years and there are bad years. The key to me accumulating what I have was, was through the real estate. And, you, you know, when I bought my first farm and I was actually a senior in college, when I bought my first farm in 1993, I paid $350 an acre for that. And over time I've sold timber off that farm. I've, uh, I got a tobacco buyout when there was a tobacco program, there was a tobacco buyout. They paid landowners based on the tobacco base you had. Uh, I've raised cattle on there. I've raised crops on there. Now I lease it. I lease the hunting. I lease. So I've, I've, it's been a very, the, that first farm it was, you know, a very good investment. It's, it's cash flowed really well. And I would say that that farm would bring at least $5,000 an acre now. Well, so that's how much real estate, farm real estate has appreciated over the last 30 years. And you can leverage that, you know, I mean, you could leverage that. Uh, refinance other loans and use the equity to buy more land. And that's kind of, you read those real estate books, how to get rich in real estate. I kind of, I'm not, I, I'm not rich, but I accumulated what I did kind of that way. Uh, well, good for you. Buying land and using the equity to buy more land. So, but when you want to pull the trigger, the first political office you ran for was? State representative. In the Kentucky General Assembly. And how was that race? Easy for you? Open seat? you take on somebody? What was the deal there? I filed against a Republican in the primary. He was old and in really bad health. Kind of looked like some of the senators that I saw <laughs> coming in. But that's right. another story. Yeah. And um, he dropped out on the filing deadline and ran his wife. And it was it was something they used the same signs. His name was Polston, and her name was obviously Polston, the last name. So they had their old signs, reelect Polston, and and it was it was awful because he was an incumbent. Of course, he wasn't running again, uh, but his wife was running, and the NRA of all groups endorsed 
my opponent <laughs> because he was the incumbent. They thought they had the wrong person. They, I don't know if they thought it was the incumbent running again, but it was his wife and, uh, that, you know, you want that NRA endorsement, but so I worked really hard in that campaign and I got, uh, 72%, I think. Well, that's impressive. Yeah. There was no Democrat. And, uh, so I, Basically, I won the primary in May and I took office the next January. I was 27 when I won and 28 when I took office. And how long did you do that before you decided to run for a different office? Yeah, I I was in the General Assembly 11 years. I was unopposed every time after that. Never had opposition. I don't remember smart folks there in your part of Kentucky. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to run against you. Yeah, well. The people back home have always been very supportive of me, and I appreciate that. There's no place like home. I say that all the time. But uh, I was there 11 years, and then I ran for commissioner of agriculture because I had a strong agriculture background. That's a statewide office, and I ran in 2011 election cycle. Mm -hmm. And I was the only Republican that won that year in Kentucky, the Democrat won the governor's office, the attorney general's office, the auditor, the treasurer. Wow. And and then the Republican won the ag commissioner. And I was the top vote getter on the ticket. So never before had a down ballot Republican won a statewide office when the Republican governor didn't win. Right. Our Republican governor candidate got beat by two hundred and fifty thousand votes, but I won by two hundred and fifty thousand votes. So it was a it was a remarkable crossover and that kind of launched my you know my my career to a different level wow i don't know what was going on there but that swing of five hundred thousand votes in a statewide when you're both on the ballot um both with an r next to your name that that's an incredible yeah unprecedented uh, yeah never happened so so when you ran for congress open seat we were running against somebody what was it well there was one little little hiccup in between so i was (laughs) four years yeah and then uh, I I could have run for re-election. Frank Mister probably would have been unopposed, but uh, it was an open seat for governor. So I I actually ran for governor, and there were uh, four Republicans, probably the four best highest quality Republicans to ever run in a primary in Kentucky. And uh, I there was the Supreme Court, the Chief Judge of the Supreme Court, the uh, and then two self funders. And then me, and I I came in second. I won 60 out of a 120 counties. All four, the other three all won some counties, but I won the majority of the counties. It was like the presidential map. You know, it was all red everywhere. But uh, I lost that election by 83 votes. A gubernatorial race, 83 I votes. Lost, I lost by 83 votes. It's the closest governor's race ever in, in America, from what I understand. And... Uh, you know, I was disappointed and it was hard. You know, I mean, I'm from a small town and in my home county, I got 97 percent of the vote Wow! in my in my county. And they had the highest voter turnout in the state out of 120 counties in Kentucky. My little home county had the highest turnout and I got 97 percent of the vote. I think that says a lot. My old state house district, I got, uh, you know, 85 percent of the vote. And then in uh, in the first congressional district, which I now represent, I, I you know, ran away with that. Well, I, but I lost. I lost by 83 vote. And then 90 days after that primary, Ed Whitfield, who was my predecessor, announced he wasn't running again. And he actually dropped out. 
and I was encouraged by everyone because I ran away with that congressional district in the in the governor's race and of course in the ag race. So I filed for Congress in an open seat, uh, won the won the primary, and with with you know I won the primary by like forty five points or something, and then won the general by probably fifty. I was actually on the ballot twice, uh, once to fill out the term. So I started in the lame duck session of 2016, the the, the last right. eight weeks of, of that, and then the full term in 2017. So uh, that's how I ended up in Congress. That is an amazing journey. Because what was the lesson you learned when you lost? I mean, <laughs> you weren't expecting to lose. I, you, no. you, I didn't know it was going to be close, but yeah. you know, every every other office you'd won. So why not this one? And you know, when you get such support from your hometown. And, yeah. you know, the problem is your hometown, like your county only had 10,000 people. So, yeah. well, I won 60 counties. I won, if you broke it down by congressional districts, there's six congressional districts in the, in the state. I won four of the six hmm. and then came in third in the other two. And the other two was, was Thomas Massey's district, which, you know, at the, just a tea party. Yeah. yeah. You know, I can imagine uh, <laughs> I got killed up there. That's in that Cincinnati area, which is about mm, four hour drive from my house. And then, uh, then Louisville, I got killed in Louisville. That's more of a moderate Republican. So the guy that came in third won the Louisville congressional district and the, the guy that ended up winning by 83 votes won massey's northern kentucky district and i won the rest of the state i won <laughs> central kentucky western kentucky eastern kentucky and southern kentucky but you know if you start doing the math i mean i, just, I got killed in northern kentucky i i didn't have enough money to go on tv in that cincinnati market and at the at the end of the day you ask what i learned uh it's hard to win a, a statewide race if you're grossly outspent and i was outspent by Biblical proportion in, in the governor's race. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I I can feel your pain there. So yeah, you you get to Congress. Um, how is it different than what you thought it was going to be like? Yeah, it's a lot different. When I was in the General Assembly, I made you know a lot of close relationships. At the end of the session, which didn't last that long, everybody got along. Republicans and Democrats got along. We'd go out to eat. Frankfurt, where the state capital is in Kentucky, is not a big town. So everybody would go, Republicans and Democrats would go out to eat. We'd have a big time. Nobody had fundraisers or anything like that. You didn't do that in, in the General Assembly. In fact, you couldn't raise money while the General Assembly was in session. So there was a lot of camaraderie and, and you know, just developed a lot of friends that I'm still friends with today. Some of my best friends today are people I served in the Kentucky General Assembly with. You get to Congress and it, it's, it's different. Now, you may have had a different experience than, than I have, and I certainly – I'm close to a lot of people up here, but I, you know, I've never, I think one time I went out to eat with a Democrat, Joe Cunningham, who uh, Nancy Mace beat. Joe was, uh, was, he grew up in my district. His dad's a, a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. So we went out to eat when he first got elected. But, you know, this is the Democrats and Republicans don't get along well enough to go out to eat uh, with me anyway. And then, uh, you know, it's just like every night, everybody goes in a different direction. You have fundraisers. And, you know, I'm doing a lot of TV now at night. And things like that. So it's uh, it's just a lot, a lot different from a. It's not as folksy and and small town vibe as as the Kentucky General Assembly was. It's a whole and the media's got gosh. I mean, <laughs> Jason, this press corps up here is so 
biased and unfair and and it's just that's a battle dealing with that too i didn't have to deal with that that badly some somebody was asking us and it was myself and and trey gowdy and the the, you know and and i remember trey talking about this saying you know the big what's your biggest disappointment what was the biggest and uh, and i like the way he phrased it where he said listen um the national media and i think i'd probably put them at the top of the list too these iconic um press organizations that you know where they have these laudable you know democracy dies in darkness and you know all the news that's fit to print (laughs) i beg to differ trey gowdy used to like to say you know, the, the media in this town, they never met a Republican investigation they ever thought should start. And they never bumped into a Democratic-run uh, investigation they ever thought should end. And and I think that's true. It's just the, the lack of intellectual curiosity that somehow the media at some point, well before me, morphed into an activist organization as opposed to Hey, let's just have the facts and we'll lay them out here for you and you you can decide. That's right. You know, in Kentucky, the Associated Press had a good reputation of being fair and balanced. And I came to Washington thinking, well, you know, the Associated Press will be a good news outlet. I want to develop a relationship with them and work with them. I mean, it's unbelievable the stuff the Associated Press. I mean, it's like whatever the the Democrat National Committee or the White House sends them, they will they will print. And, Almost you know, verbatim. If, if I have bank records <laughs> saying the Biden family cut a uh, half million dollar wire from China, and I actually have the bank records and, and re- release the bank records in a bank memo, and the, the White House tells the Associated Press that's not true, they wrote, they, they would write, Comer alleged he had banker. I mean, it, it's just like unbelievable what they what they what they write. I mean, it's so unfair, biased, and and false. Yeah, the the, the one that's mystifying to me is they will say um, Republicans allege you know Biden corruption without any evidence, and then they uh-huh. continue on and like, wait a sec, other than. You know, voicemails, text messages, emails, suspicious activity reports, 20, I mean, and the list just goes on and on and on, right? And and even, you know, we're recording this uh, podcast after you did this long, you know, six-hour hearing. It won't be out for a number of days. But, you know, they still walk away from that saying, there's no evidence. And I'm like, seriously? Like, where do you come up with this no evidence thing? I mean... Any jury in America would have would have indicted this family by now with with the with the bank records, the text messages, the pictures, mm-hmm. the sworn testimony, the emails, the bank statements, the bank records, the bank wires, the IRS whistleblower testimony. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And then uh, just just a couple of days ago, we had that wire from. From Beijing, from China, from the Chinese national to to Hunter Biden for a quarter of a million dollars, and the address listed on the wire was Joe Biden's house. And we released that, and and, the, and I walk out, and I'm feeling pretty good. I get a little pep in my step. I think, all right, I've showed this media. And and you know what? The first question they ask me, they run around me. You know how they do a little gaggle when you're trying to walk in to vote. They they're they're waiting for you like like piranhas, you know, and they they swarm you. And they said, so. This new evidence you released 
what does it have to do with Joe Biden? And I mean, it's like, <laughs> his it's, home it's address. Yeah, his home address. Hunter didn't live there. You know, he, he did not live there at the time. So, you know, that's odd that it was sent to his home address. But the bottom line is, what did the this was when he was running for president. I mean, is this China collusion? I mean, can you imagine if a Republican candidate for president got a quarter of a million dollar wire for no reason from a from a Chinese national? What the media would say about that? But there, as you said, there's no institutional curiosity with how did that quarter of a million dollars, you know, what, what yeah. created that that transaction? Nobody knows. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Congressman James Comer right after this. I think one of the hardest things that I dealt with and that uh, is now in your lap is how to get those subpoenas enforced because it's going to get increasingly difficult and the deep, dark frustration, like pulling my hair out type of frustration is the ability to enforce those. And I think Congress really is going to have to self-examine and get a backbone if they're really going to do this because you can't just, ha- you know, the way it's set up now, you have to go to the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, which is appointed by President Biden. Right. How, how do you have an easy solution to that? Because, boy, Trey Gowdy and I just ran into that and it just killed us. Well, we're headed there now with these personal bank records and we knew we would because the banks have been pretty cooperative with us on everything else we've subpoenaed of course we were subpoenaing the bank accounts for those shell companies and now we're subpoenaing the personal bank account and all the wires went first through the shell companies and then they were dispersed to the nine different biden family members so now we're going to try to get those those bank accounts. So we followed the eras, you know, we got the era from China, Romania, right. you know, Uzbekistan to the shell companies, then to the different various different Bidens. Now we want to see if there are arrows after that. And, you know, that's, uh, that's where the banks have said that no, we've already been told by the Biden lawyers, do not cooperate with you all. We're going to go to court and all that. So that's one reason we did the impeachment inquiry. And that's what the purpose of the hearing on the impeachment inquiry was, was to establish the basis for impeachment inquiry. And we did that. All three witnesses said that uh, we definitely had established the the threshold to go to impeachment inquiry. And they felt like we needed to continue to follow the money and and determine what extent Biden was was involved in this. Yeah. And again, I thought, you know, if it was not just Trump or any Republican that said, hey, don't abide by a duly issued subpoena, um, I, I don't think I think it would be ignored. I think they would actually fulfill that request. But you know, Democrats and Bidens, they and Clintons, they all play by different rules. Right. That's exactly right. You know, in 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 the cases that I was working on, not only did we issue subpoenas, but then some of these people decided, oh, we'll just go ahead and destroy these documents. And, and again, no consequence for just destroying the documents. You know, in the in the IRS case that we looked at, not only did they destroy the documents, the inspector general who came in, TIGDA, you know, the Treasury Inspector right. General, went in and looked at it and said they didn't even look for the documents that were under subpoena. So, right. uh, but again, zero consequence. And 
And this is where I think Republicans have to look in the mirror and Congress has to look in the mirror and say there has to be a more substantive way uh, to do this. Because not only that, you have a, a national media. It used to be, I think, in the day you'd get shamed into it. They, you know, How could you do this? It'd be shameful to not do it. But now they think right. it's just part of the game and the, and the, the, the charade. And, and it's, you know, it's and the Democrats will just look out there and say, there's no evidence. Right. But when there is the evidence and you need to take the next logical step like you're going to, like you have, I, first of all, I think you've done a fabulous job. I mean, the amount of time that you've been able to put this together, it's amazing. But Congress has got to figure out how to enforce those subpoenas and give them weight. Right. I agree 100%. And we're, we're seeing that up close and personal as we speak. Biggest surprises, Chairman? What what's that been for you? I mean, the 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 media. Uh, that's that's been the biggest surprise slash disappointment. I really thought that I could go in there and have credibility. I mean, I I'm not. Uh, you know, I could go into reasons why I thought I would have credibility and, and all of that. And and I thought I'm going to work with these media people. I'm going to be transparent. We're going to answer their questions. We're going to bring them in. And it doesn't matter. They're going to write whatever, whatever they, whatever their ideology leads them to write, or whatever their 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 talking points are from the White House or, or whomever their editors or whatever. So that's been a big disappointment. The uh, the speed at which we operate has been a big disappointment because uh, you know it just it just takes a long time in these congressional investigations. Like if if I request information from the National Archives for the pseudonym emails that Joe Biden used. I, mean, I expect to get those. Well, now, I mean, it's been it's been over 30 days and they're, they're, they're saying Obama had 30 days to review them. And now because it was in the Obama administration, now they're going to let Biden uh, review them. He needs 30 <laughs> days. For, I mean, it's just like everything is stonewalled. Everything's a battle. I just and I know people in America think, that when the chairman of the House Oversight Committee asks for something, people give it to them, and that's that's not the way it, it works, but it should. But the uh, obstruction and lack of cooperation from from a lot of agencies like the National Archives, the Department of Justice, the FBI, the Secret Service, the IRS, it's been pretty surprising. And, you know, I went into this position. I was not a conspiracy theorist, uh, voted to certify the, the election in a district Trump won by 50. But I will tell you, the, the deep state is real. And we have got to get rid of the people at the top uh, in the Department of Justice and, and in the uh, in the FBI. And, and you know, it's uh, I used to say we should hold them accountable <laughs> in the budget, but I've given up on that. I mean, we've got we just don't have the votes to, to do that for whatever reason in, in, in Congress. It's been a big disappointment, too. Yeah. You know, I've talked a lot of people talk about term limits. I'm like, you know, one of the first places you have to start with term limits is on the bureaucracy. Absolutely. If you you don't do that, you don't get some turnover here. I I remember talking to a cabinet secretary under the Trump administration and uh, this cabinet secretary had served in Congress and uh, he he totally got it and he understood. He stood and he said, you know, the problem is we won and it's great. But now I have to play with the Clinton team like they the Clinton-Obama team was still in place. They were still all the bureaucrats, and, you know, 98% of them, uh, it's just not 
there's no balance. There's no respect right. to to actually do this and 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 get this done. And and uh, I actually I remember holding a hearing where at least part of the hearing we talked about, you know, the whole idea of email is how quickly you can search and find something. It, this is not the whole idea with technology is that you don't have to go to a bunch of files. Like, how long does it take to type in that email address? Exactly. And look at all the responses. Like, that's the beauty of it. And right. um, and for them to say, oh, we need 30 for this. And it's just about, it's a game of running out the clock. Yeah, no, I agree. And that's what they're trying to do is stall and stall. And of course, the, the media came out and said, if the government shut down, do you fear that the agencies will not work with you to to conduct your investigation. I said, heck, they haven't worked with me when it was open. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're going to use whatever excuse they can use to not cooperate. And, you know, the frustrating thing is Joe Biden, you know, when he got elected saying he was going to be a uniter, saying he was going to be the most transparent president in history, and he's the least transparent president in the history. No, if, if he wanted, you know, they've got a war room attacking Jim Jordan and me as we speak. I mean, the Tweets they were firing out during the hearing, it, it's it's comical. And, you know, they've got billboards in my district attacking me. They've got uh, social media and digital ads attacking me in, in the district, which is, I think, helping me, Jason, to be honest with you. But but at the, at the end of the day, if they want to make me look bad, turn over the emails and, and bank records. And if there's nothing there, then I'll look bad. But they don't want to do that. If you want to make me look bad, just say what you did to get the $20 million from, from our enemies in China and in Romania and Russia. But they can't answer that, Jason. Yeah. And and that's the way they, they win and make me look bad is if they prove that they didn't do anything wrong. But instead of doing that, they're attacking me and working with their friends in the media to create a narrative that there's no evidence. Well, again, I think you've uh, having been the chairman uh, for a few years there. I got to tell you, uh, you got a good staff. You hired the right people, and you're doing an an incredible job in a record amount of time. I mean, it, I know it feels like slow, and I'm glad that you feel that way. But uh, if you think about it, you weren't even able to constitute the committee until you know the middle of January, really. And so, end of January, yeah, end of January, end of January, yeah. and look at here we are. So. Keep going in that regard. Um, I can't keep you all night, so I do need to ask you a few rapid questions, and then okay. we'll wrap this up. But you've been Thanks. so generous with your time. Um, so we just do a few questions, and I don't care how many hearings you've been through so far in marathon hearings. I, I don't know that you're properly prepared for this, but we'll give it a go, okay? All right. I'm from Kentucky, Appalachia, Kentucky, so you know I talk slow, but I'll do my best. <laughs> It doesn't have to be that fast. Uh, I, I'm not Jim Jordan. Just remember that. <laughs> nobody lists off things as rapid fire as Jim Jordan. There's nobody that can do it as fast. And you've probably seen him on the exercise bike there in the house, Jim. Oh, you know, he, he's he a wrestler. He's yeah. just dripping sweat when he works out on that bike. Nobody wants to sit on that exercise bike after Jim's been on it because it's just sopping wet. He does clean it up, but you know. Okay. What was your high school mascot? Falcons. Well, that's legit. What What was your first concert you ever attended? Randy Travis. Oh, <laughs> man, that's about as 
solid Kentucky of an answer as it gets, Randy Travis. Hey, I'm, I'm a redneck. I'm a redneck. So. <laughs> you probably couldn't run for ag commissioner if you had, you know, somebody else. So that that right, right. legit answer there. What was your first job? Working on the farm. And what were you doing? I shoveling square bales of hay, uh, mainly putting square bales of hay up. That's a hard job, believe me. Oh, I I bet. I bet. What about uh what do you think about pineapple on pizza? What do I think about what? Pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Oh, pineapple on pizza. I don't like it, but my staff does. We got to work on your staff. I just praise them, but now I'm hearing that they're eating pineapple on pizza. That's giving they're making a little highly suspect. Staff, my personal staff, my Kentucky staff. <laughs> uh, best advice you ever got? Work hard. Uh, don't take anything for granted, and believe in yourself. Good advice. Good advice. Uh, Chairman James Comer from the Oversight Committee from uh, Kentucky. I really do appreciate it. I appreciate the work that you're putting in. Having been there, I know the sacrifice that it takes for you and your family and all the time away and everything else. And uh, But I, you know what? You keep doing it with a smile on your face and you're answering every question. And that's just the way it has to get done. And uh I have nothing but praise for what you're doing and how you're doing it. And uh, I appreciate you joining us on the Jason in the House podcast. Thanks so much, Jason. Appreciate you. All right. That uh, conversation with uh, James Comer. Loved it. Enjoy it. Learned a lot about him. I didn't know he was such a landowner or dairyman, you know, for doing cattle, I should say. Um, what a good guy. He's just a good guy doing all the right things. And uh, his passion for public service, it shows he's always got a smile on his face and very, very appreciative that he would take the time to join us on the Jason in the House podcast. And uh, I hope you found that fun. Uh, I would appreciate it if you could rate this podcast. That would be helpful. And also, you can subscribe to this podcast. I want to remind people you can listen to ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Appreciate you joining us. Hope you can join us next week. we got another good, fun, exciting guest who will join us. And we'll talk about the news and stupid because there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. So join us again next week. And thanks for joining us on the Jason in the House podcast. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.